What's good, beautiful people? It's your King Skazoo and Cole. And welcome to Tea Time Podcast. So everyone, we uh, have a guest today. Would the guest like to introduce themselves? Pronouns, their name, and you know their top three star signs if they know that. Or just oh. the main one. <laughs> or just the main one. Just the main one. Okay. Yes, like my listeners. Right. Hello, listeners. Hello, everybody. Um, my name is Judy McCauley. I am the founder and uh, of House of Rainbow. And House of Rainbow is a, a faith-based organization that started in 2006 in my native country, Nigeria. And the whole idea behind House of Rainbow is to create safe space for Black Africans who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and also Christians. Uh, but we have since, you know, um, developed a lot of our programs and our activities to respond to many areas. Um, I'm actually beginning to talk about my work. So let me go back to talk about myself. Um, <laughs> it's one of those things, isn't it? Um, well, I was born into a Christian family. Uh, my parents were very uh, conservative Christians. Um, my mom is late. Um, I'm one of five siblings. My older brother is also late. So um, I'm I'm a Christian theologian. I'm I'm happily gay. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm an activist for many things. Uh, activist on, uh, you know, um, liberal theology and inclusive theology. Uh, I'm an activist. Mm. You know, uh, obviously creating a lot of awareness around HIV. And I'm also a person myself, uh, living well with HIV for nearly twenty years. So uh, uh, there's so much about me. I'm also uh, a parent, I'm a godparent, so I'm a spiritual parent. So many of those things actually describe me. And I'm currently uh, a chaplain uh, to the universities in Manchester. So uh, this is the city where I am living at the moment. So, and that's me. <laughs> okay. Sorry, like a few things just caught me just then because you said that you're a chaplain in Manchester. And the thing is, I'm actually moving to Manchester in January because it is my favorite city in this island of England that we, whatever we call it. You are so welcome, honestly. I mean, I lived in London for 38 years and moving to Manchester is a completely change of environment. It's very wet, honestly, but yeah. <laughs> you you will get used to it. And, and I think compared to London, it is, Manchester is like an easy place to live in. People are more friendly. Um, it, it has its own, it has an own share of crime. So it's just it's just knowing what to do. Yeah. Mm. I, I mean, mean, everyone's more friendly when they're not in London. To be honest. I mean, neither one of us, neither one of us live in London. So mm. yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> um. Just another thing just missing from your introduction um what are your pronouns and do you know your big three or your main star sign because the listeners they like that for whatever reason. okay <laughs> well um i i almost missed this out uh my pronouns are he him uh but you know i people in my community call me reverend mother so uh and mama is another pronoun that i use quite a lot and and the reason behind it is because you know I, you know, have come to challenge toxic masculinity, patriarchy because uh, there is a, a a deep pain when people call me sir, boss, uncle, or things like that. But you know, my pronouns are still he him. I still identify as male, um, but I prefer people calling me mama. 
I mean, I come from a tradition, an African tradition, where um, anyone younger than me, well, in a, a Nigerian sense, cannot actually call me by name, but I insist that people call me Jide. And if they don't want to call me Jide, then they can call me Mama. They're not mm. uncle or sir. So my pronouns are he, him, and mama. Um, well, three, is it three stars or three signs? Like your your big three, if you know them, or your main stars, like your actual star sign? I'm not sure about my three main signs because I haven't actually kind of like worked that out. But when it comes to zodiac sign, I'm very familiar with my own zodiac mm -hmm. sign, which is Scorpio. Um, I think Scorpios are described as very sexy, you know, or very <laughs> sexual. Yeah, and I kind of agree, yeah. Kind of like slotty kind of people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, this, can, this can go on the record, you know. I, I do have a, a great banter with my friends and things like that. You know, I, I sometimes call myself the holy harlot. <laughs> you know, like anything, anything at all. I love but that nothing... so much. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's always important, to be quite honest, to have a sense of humour as well, you know, even though I am a person yeah. of faith, um, I do have a sense of humour and I do have a, a good time having, you know, sharing jokes with my friends, of course, you know, good jokes um, as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh, that was amazing. <laughs> that was <laughs> okay, so just off of the back end of that, so like when did you like actually come out to say that like, you know, I'm gay and like this is who I am? And like how was that for you? Wow. Um, coming out as gay has never been easy. I, I didn't think that I had a pattern or a pathway or a structure. Um, I just knew that I was gay, but it was never easy. I can tell you now, even at the point of having this conversation in 2022, just for the record, I'm still coming out as gay in certain circles because mm. people just don't know. But let me put in perspective. Um, I've always known that I'm gay around mm. about age five. But growing up in Nigeria as a, as a, a an African, we don't have a vocabulary like we do here in the, in the UK and the West. We don't have a book vocabulary about gay. We just know that you know. I just knew that I gravitated towards same sex, you know, uh, and relationship or same sex attraction uh, mm. at age five. And I think for me, the way that I understood it was actually in the social circle, the play. You know, uh, if we're playing doctor and nurses, I want to be nurse. If we're playing mommy and daddy, I want to be mommy. But and yeah. and again, you know, I I I've been very very careful and also intentional that you know, growing up I was very effeminate, but that does not always determine that I was gay. It was just that mm -hmm. I was effeminate. For me, yeah. it, it was a good thing to know. And again, I've talked about being called mama, and I think that is because I now find my place in that place of comfort and peace when I say call me mama mm -hmm. and um, and I think you know so again um so age five but at age 14 I was pretty much clear because um you know I always say to people uh, when I have these conversations that uh, I, I believe I had a boyfriend when I was 14 years old uh yeah. whether or not he knew he was my boyfriend <laughs> <laughs> Because, I mean, I, I had one of the best relationships with this chap, um, you know, and in Yoruba, we would say things like, meaning like, you know, very close friendship, 
that they, mm. if they don't see each other, they don't sleep. And I think that was really key. We were so close. And, you know, if he doesn't come to school, I'll skip school. I will go check if he's, when he's unwell. I'll stay with him. I'll look after him. He'll look after mm. me. But, I mean, of course, you know, I mean, at age 14, there was nothing sexual at the time. But I just knew that I was very close to this very person. Yeah. But then, of course, coming out as gay in a Christian environment or a Christian circle, I always try to find a way to to navigate it. So, and um, I, I remember always saying to people, um, I want to be your friend, like David and June Axel. I think somehow in my teenage years, I worked out that David and Jonathan were gay. So I wanted a friendship like David and Jonathan. So I was saying, I'll be your friend like David and Jonathan, that kind of thing. Because this, for me, it was at that time, it was very uh, scripture focused. Mm. But of course, you know, um, coming out became more challenging and difficult because, you know, at one point it felt okay as I was navigating my own sexuality in a very hostile Christian environment. It also meant that at some point in time, I was also going into the closet. Yeah. I was going into the closet because of my religious beliefs. I was going into the closet because of my traditional expectations. Uh, you know, what I thought was right for me as a boy, as a man, is mm. to be with a woman. And I think that at one point in time, you know, I took to the life of prayer where I, you know, I, I grew up in a very... Uh, a deeply African spiritual church uh, where we were literally taught how to pray. We were taught how to pray so that such that if you, depending on what kind of issues you're dealing with, there are different ways to pray. For example, uh, if I was just going for a job interview, I might fast and pray for one day. Uh, but if I have to pray against, you know, an, an enemy, I might have to pray and fast for three days but anything more serious requires like seven days of fasting but of course the ultimate number of days is 40 days and 40 nights nice. because the, yeah. the evidence was uh jesus prayed uh for 40 days and 40 nights in order to to defeat the enemy that you know uh satan that was trying to tempt him yeah. so when it comes to coming out you know i think i took a different route you know, by going into the closet and praying away my sexuality. But it also meant that I had great challenges coming out to say that I'm gay. Yeah. Well, let me conclude on that part of praying away my sexuality because I did actually went into a time of praying for 40 days and 40 nights, praying away my sexuality. And of course, when I did, at the end of 40 days, I approached a girl and, uh, you know, a member of my church at the time, um, you know, a, a member of the congregation that I, I went to at the time, I asked if she would be my girlfriend and she said yes. And to be quite honest, my very naive self believed that I'm no longer gay because now I have a girlfriend. How can I be gay? And of course, you know, I put that down to the miraculous working of God and that God has healed me of my homosexuality. And I think the reason I always talk about this is because, you know, um, even the Bible says that we pray we did not receive because we pray amiss. It means that we didn't pray properly. We didn't pray with counseling. We didn't have the appropriate pastoral care and support. So when I did all of those prayers to pray away my sexuality, it became very difficult. So it meant that even now that I'm in this space of heterosexuality, it's now mm. difficult for me to come out. I literally lock myself in a closet that is surrounded by 
you know, a, a high level of uh, religious ignorance, um, you know, uh, traditional abuse. So it was mm. difficult for me to come out. Um, yeah. It took me at least about seven years before I, I came out of that heterosexual relationship. And mm. that was very painful. And I always say that there's a seven years I cannot get back. I can't get those seven years back. Um, yeah. and, and I was in a relationship with a woman. Um, we got married in the last three years of that relationship. We had a child together. And, um, and then I eventually came out as gay. And I haven't actually looked back since. But yeah. again, of course, you know, um, coming out took a very different pathway as well. So uh, when I was in a relationship, you know, I was using my, my English name, um, Roland, in that relationship. And that's the name my family called me uh, all of my life and they still do today mm -hmm. but when I came out as gay I started to use Jide which is one of my Nigerian names and in the early stages because I was <clears> experiencing <throat> um, you know a, a lot of anxiety and mental health um, if you knew me as Roland and you called me called out my name anywhere in the street or whatever I would not respond to you I'll just look at you blank because I didn't want to know that person but yeah. if you call me Jide, because I'm now beginning to introduce myself to uh, my queer friends and, and people that I trusted as Jide, I felt yeah. safe. Mm. So coming out is very, very, very uh, difficult at times. Even with my new job in chaplaincy, to be quite honest, when I sent out my application for the job, I, I did make sure that I wrote in it that I'm a gay man. And when I came to the interview, I did say I'm a gay man. So... Um, mm. I, I think I asked difficult questions and I'm grateful that they employed me. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously you've expressed how hard it was and obviously that you kind of closeted yourself um, unintentionally. Um, how did your family react? Like, was it hard to tell your family? Uh, you know, coming out as gay and family can be very, very difficult, can be very challenging. Yeah. And um, um, I think with my family, there are so many stories uh, around my coming out. Um, before I came out as gay, I was very close. Myself and my siblings are very, very close. I mean, mm. uh, you know, I mean, living in England uh, is it, quite challenging in itself, but my siblings, we were so close. We were yeah. in and out of each other's spaces every week. So there was no questions asked. But of course, you know, um, when I started to have relationship, um, because uh, there was a point where I had a relationship with, with, with a man and um, I, I moved into his house and it was so difficult for me to take my siblings to his house. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it was difficult in the sense that uh, he only had like a one bedroom masonette. Mm -hmm. um, if he had a two bedroom, I probably would have got away with it by showing, yeah. you know, my siblings a second room that this is my room. Because again, uh, you know, obviously you can rent a room in, in other people's home. Mm -hmm. But when it's yeah. just a one bedroom, I mean, how am I going to explain to my sibling that I pay rent for half the bed? <clears throat> <laughs> I mean, honestly, so, so the, <laughs> in the end, the relationship didn't work because, again, there was also conflict of, uh, you know, culture, culture as well. But, I mean, talking to family, of course, you know, I mean, this particular scenario that I just shared was actually before I prayed away my sexuality and then I got married to a woman so uh mm -hmm. because we, myself and my sibling were so close 
but of course, you know, after I uh, separated and, and divorced my ex-wife, um, I think word went out, you know, to my family that I'm gay, but no one spoke about it. I think yeah. uh, the, the culture of silence uh, kind of prevailed. And the unfortunate thing is that just imagine weeks and months before my separation and divorce from my ex-wife, myself and my siblings still spend a lot of time together. But when I separated, it seems that that time together, you know, kind of started to, to create a distance of its own. So mm. I always liken it to be at sea where, you know, you're parted away and then, you know, the current is now taking you in very different direction and there's complete silence. Um, you know, it was years later, you know, when I had the courage, you know, to talk to my, my siblings about my sexuality and why are we not as close as we were. I mean, my, my late brother, before he passed away, he, he well, not on his deathbed, but it was just a conversation. Uh, actually, it was in the same year he died, uh, but it was January. He said yeah. to me that, you know, we've always loved you, but we didn't know how to uh, talk about your sexuality because we didn't want yeah. to hurt you. Yeah. And and that statement in itself, you know, made me sad and angry because coming out for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex people is not only for us, it is yeah. also for our families, yeah. for our yeah. siblings, because when we come out, they <clears throat> come out too. Yeah. And I think it's important to be able to find the appropriate culturally sensitive and traditionally appropriate support for everybody. Mm. And and I think that, you know, I mean, I I, I want to stay on, on the subject of coming out uh, to my family because there's, there's a little bit more story. But having mm. said that, I think that when we're coming out, our family also need all the support and all the therapy that they need. But the other reality is that if families have created a safe environment and a soft landing for the LGBT family member, it yeah. means coming out will not be so difficult yeah. uh, for all of us. So I say, for example, if an uncle or an auntie had said something like, oh, if any of my nieces or nephews are gay or lesbian, I'm cool with that, I'm going to be happy with that. Yeah. It, it allows those youngest members of the family to speak up and find their comfort because they know that they can go to this uncle and actually confide in the uncle and know that they will get the right support. Yeah. Yeah. Coming back to coming, yeah. Going forward with coming out is very interesting. Um, so when I first came out as gay, it was very difficult. I think um finding the black queer community was very difficult and challenging. But nonetheless, I found the gay community, but it wasn't exactly the, the black community because Everywhere I went, like the club, even the churches that are inclusive of gay people, they were mostly white people. So mm. uh, I think it, it's coming out really worth it. Actually, when I first came out, I kept on thinking, what what do new gays do when they come out? Because <laughs> I'm a new gay. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I'm gay now. So what? What do new gay people do? <laughs> the story of my life. Actually, I mean, yeah, I mean, three years after I came out, um, you know, I was very close to my mother. My mother passed away in 2013. Mm. Um, I was very close to my mother even long before I came out as gay. But uh, 
three years after I came out and separated from my ex-wife, you know, I visited my mother like I normally do on a Sunday afternoon. And um, actually, before I share that story, um, my mother, she was such a funny woman. Um, I think my mother knew that I was gay probably even before I got married to a woman. Um, and then when I came out, you know, she started to like keep an eye on me. I mean, she was like, uh, like a kind of a detective. So, mm. and then um, I think she must have heard on the news that there was going to be gay pride or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and my mother decided that she needed a favor from me and that it would have to be a gay pride weekend. Jesus. Mm. I, I remember telling my mother that the weekend before that weekend and the weekend after, you can have both weekends if you want, but this weekend I am not available. I am not available. She definitely knew. Yeah, I think she knew. She knew. She she knew. (laughs) She knew. She was like, uh -uh." Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh-uh. Can you believe that? I mean, of course, mothers will be mothers. So on that weekend, I was at Gay Pride. And you know how noisy Gay Pride is. And my mother called me on my mobile phone. and, And of course, I pick up the phone. And the noise was so, it was so deafening. She said, I said, where, where are you? I said, I'm at the fun fair. <laughs> My mother said, no, don't lie to me. You're at the game pride. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, I... I remember that conversation. So I, I put the phone down, honestly, with a little bit of trepidation. Oh, my God. How am I going to face my mother after this? So, of course, I mean, the following weekend, I went to see my mother. And, um, you know, she said to me, you know, um, are you gay? And by this time, I just said, yes, you know, I'm gay. And she said, why didn't you tell me that for three years she had been praying for another wife? Instead, she should have been praying for a husband. Honestly, I almost choked on my chicken bone that like, what, mother? And of course, you know, I mean, I, I say this because I think that people need to hear it, that, you know, our parents do know. And I think mothers, most especially, are probably more spiritually connected and have a better understanding of their children's sexuality. But of course, when uh, mothers live in a patriarchal society, you know, or a religious ignorance environment, it actually impacts on how they make those decisions. But yeah. mothers, I believe mothers always know, even fathers know as well, whether they will accept it or not. But I think what I also would say, in addition to my mother's coming out to my mother or my mother's acceptance of my sexuality, it's not what she said, but also what she did. Because yeah. later on, as the years progress, you know, I went to do studies of inclusive theology in an all-inclusive LGBT church. And whilst my father distanced myself, uh, distanced himself and encouraged my entire family not to associate with me and actually called my church, the church of the devil, my mother came with me to the church to celebrate my ordination in the ministry. So, and my mother did so many things, you know, um, up to the point of our death that reassured me of her love and understanding of my sexuality. And unfortunately, you know, um, coming out to my father was very different from coming out to my mom. Um, It was probably almost nine years after 
my divorce and my separation and divorce from my ex-wife that my father, you know, had a conversation about my sexuality with me. And mm. um, I mean, he didn't have any conversation that made me comfortable. I think my father was more concerned about his own reputation in Nigeria and that he said that I am a disgrace to his family and that homosexuality is an abomination. Mm. He actually encouraged me to find another woman and all this foolishness will go away. And um, I wasn't prepared to put another woman through what I put my first wife through because mm. it is extremely unfair. And of course, part of my activism, and part of my message is to uh, encourage, you know, uh, gay men or lesbian women in heterosexual relationships to come out of it. You know, yeah. I have told uh, gay men who were married to women who came to me and said, you know, what should I do? I said, divorce her. Free yourself and her from this bondage. This is completely unfair to both yeah. of you. Um, I, I have supported men who had left their wife and then reconnect with the with the boyfriend they had before they had a wife. It, it, it's okay. But people yeah. often say, oh no, Jide, you're doing the work of the devil. You shouldn't separate family. No. I think the woman that a gay man had married, you know, should be happy that they are free. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, and of course, you know, I mean, I I put myself always in that in that scenario because I married a woman. Um, I will always ask for the forgiveness of my ex-wife. Um, even though you know our separation became acrimonious and we've never spoken to each other since then, you know, Sammy, and we're even not in the same circle, so I don't get to see her. Um, mm. but I think that you know, I mean, I, I did say that if I if I ever write a memoir, I would dedicate a chapter to her you know, in order for the world and her to understand that I did not marry her out of malice. I was in love with her, but mm -hmm. her sexuality was not compatible. I was yeah. a gay man before I married her. When I married her, I was a gay man. And when I left her, I'm still a gay man. And I think when I came out of that relationship, I began to live my truth. But mm -hmm. let's be real, coming out is every day for us. Yeah. And I always challenge this, especially during LGBT history month that, you know, no, don't give me a month, you know, to highlight my history. I have to live in this body for 365 days a year. So I am gay. So my history is, is forever 365 days for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Wow. Okay. I'm sitting here like, hella like, wow, this is. Yeah, I'm really taking this in and this is amazing. Okay, so kind of moving away from that, um, you are an advocate, like you had previously mentioned, for like um, the HIV community, as you have said that you have been for the last, you've been positive for the last 20 years. What made you want to be so open about that? Like about your status? <laughs> Well, I mean, there's so many things that we could be quiet about, but mm -hmm. I think that sometimes silence, um, you know, really makes things really difficult for many people. Um, I've already been on a journey. So when it comes to talking about my HIV status, I already had a lot of examples that I can look back on, you know, could I be silent about my race? Could I be silent about the fact that I'm African? Could I be silent about the fact that I'm gay? And could I be silent about the fact that I'm a Christian? Then why do I need to be silent about my HIV status? Now, mm. of course, my decision to come out and speak 
you know, publicly about my HIV status, you know, uh, was a personal decision. But I've seen so many things happen even before I was visible about mine. Um, you know, the idea that HIV is a gay man's disease, the idea that HIV is God's punishment for my homosexuality is some of the things that made me change my mind that I need to talk openly about it. HIV is nothing to me but a headache that won't go away. It's got nothing to do with God and it's got nothing to do with my sexuality. So my advocacy is to take that message out to queer people in particular who are living with HIV that, hold on, God is not punishing you. That's not how God works. You know, yeah. the God that we worship across Christianity, apart from those who want to make God a hateful God, is a God of compassion, a God that deeply cares, you know. And I think that sometimes, you know, I always say to, to people that this, this God that I know today is the God that I was missing when I was coming out. The time that I was going to pray 40 days and 40 nights, you know, to God to take away my sexuality, that I was missing God in that moment where I should have had somebody like me today who would have told me that, Jide, it's okay for you to be gay. It's okay for you to live with HIV as long as you take your medication as it's prescribed to you. Mm. But you see, part of the reason I'm also speaking out about uh, living with HIV is because the Christian church has got it so wrong. Um, I mean, I, I've suffered victimization in the church. Um, there are people in the church that would not take the communion for me because I'm HIV positive. There are, you know, other clergy, other priests that have spoke awfully about me living with HIV. And I don't believe that God will speak to me or speak about me in that way. So mm -hmm. my advocacy is multifaceted. You know, I take all of my intersectionality and I began to, 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 to ensure that there is a voice, you know, for black people. There is a voice for the gay community. There is a voice for Africans and there are voices for Christians as well. And it doesn't just end there. You know, I take this very seriously. I believe that there are two things that I've done with regards to my HIV status. Um, one is that, you know, there, there is a hospital in London called the Mild May uh, HIV Mission Hospital. Uh, this hospital was made popular by Princess Diana in the 1980s when she obviously made a private visit mm -hmm. uh, to people living with HIV. In fact, people dying of AIDS. And she sat with them, you know, she held their hands. Mm -hmm. And in 2019, you know, after I've learned a little bit more uh, about the, the hospital, I volunteered, you know, at a hospital as a chaplain. Uh, so mm -hmm. I served there for three years before moving to Manchester. Now, of course, uh, the, the second journey around HIV and my faith um, is that I was introduced to a network called the International Network of Religious Leaders Living With or Affected by HIV. Uh, for short, they're called Inarela. Um, I'm currently one of the, the board members of this uh, network because the, the idea that religious leaders, you know, can be distant to HIV is wrong. The idea that, you know, you cannot be a Christian and be HIV positive is wrong. The idea mm. that you are HIV positive and you have to throw away all your medication for the sake of your belief in God is wrong. 
So I yeah. stand in the gap as part of my advocacy to say to people living with HIV, whether you're gay or not, that God loves you with everything that's going on for you. But I also advocate that people should take their medication. And my advocacy also extends to uh, those religious leaders who are ignorant about HIV, that they need to, they need to know better uh, you know, what HIV is. If every religious leader and every religious community will learn more about HIV, we will see uh, zero tolerance of HIV within faith spaces. But unfortunately, we're not there. And that is why I'm open about my own status, and that is why I'm speaking up. Wow. That's, <clears throat> that's really amazing to hear, and I really hope that that inspires other people that are HIV positive to not sort of shy away from that per se. Yeah. Um, speaking of personal experience, um, what my sister died of either HIV or AIDS uh, as a cis het woman in 19, either in 99 or 2000, I was really young, but I have like very vivid memories about the times where she was going through her treatments and she was at hospital and we had to take her home to bathe her and clothe her and try to feed her, give her medication and take her back and the back and forth of all of that kind of stuff. And, yeah. and it's important because it's kind of like way back in that kind of day too, it wasn't only like a, um, a, a homosexual man's disease or whatever they labeled it as, especially being in Zambia, like we're back home. They didn't see it like, oh, it's that. It mm. was kind of just like, you know, she's contracted this um, yeah. through like a, a spousal relationship situation but in that time nobody really saw it as that or maybe they didn't I didn't know that they saw it as that but I never heard any talks of that but it's like yeah it, it didn't only happen to people that were in like gay relationships or whatever it happened to a wide spectrum of people back then but it's really important to talk about that and I always sort of advocate for people that are HIV positive and I have from the very beginning because I've had to learn it from very young I've had to learn oh. it when I was like what between five and seven years old um mm. and just knowing that information and it really irritates me when I hear people talking about it in this day and age because it's like you lot are so uneducated when it comes to this it's like it's not a disease that can just kill you anyhow like there's medication yeah. advanced things have moved along like i know people that have like a literally like a zero um what's it called a zero viral load because they take their medication religiously and they have done for many years so it's like People don't know these things and it's just good to speak to somebody that has this information that can educate other people as well as myself. Absolutely. I'm, I'm actually going to jump in there so that I can clarify a few things. I think that what you're looking for is a um, um, suppressed uh, viral load. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, um, if anything at all, first of all, I'm, I'm sorry for your loss. Uh, and mm -hmm. I know that it's a long time ago, but I'm still pretty sorry about that. Mm -hmm. But I think that, yeah, I mean, the, the thing with HIV is that stigma actually kills uh the mm -hmm. hiv itself doesn't kill it's the stigma uh, that surrounds it that kills and that is why people go into hiding and when you uh when we talk about hiv we still have countries around the world that still have laws that criminalizes people with hiv or even purport 
and yeah. you know or proposed laws and that you know to criminalize uh recently in lesotho um they actually challenged the proposal of a law that actually says that people with hiv if you infect someone with hiv it's a death penalty but it was challenged and it was reversed yeah it was reversed in the court of appeal and it is things like that that stops people getting an hiv test in the first place because you say well i'd rather not know my status because if you know your status and then you infect somebody, uh, then it means you're liable, you know, to criminalization. But if you don't know your status, then you don't know it. But I think that, you know, the, the good news is that we now have, you know, um, antiretroviral vir uh, a, a, a virus medication. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think that the important thing is that people like myself who, who are HIV positive, we take our medication on a daily basis, you know, it suppresses uh, our HIV uh, virus. It means that even in a sexual relationship, we cannot pass it on. That yeah. is the good news. Mm -hmm. The good news is that undetectable equals untransmittable. So mm -hmm. it really doesn't matter how much you try to infect somebody if your uh, viral load is suppressed, you just cannot, it is impossible. And that is why, People can now be even in a heterosexual relationship and still be able to have children, conceive children, and you cannot pass it on to the, the negative partner in that relationship. It's just not possible. The other good news is PrEP, because yeah. I felt that, you know, it's important to talk about these things. Um, when, when PrEP was approved, I remember very well, I was in tears because uh, for HIV, it felt that the burden was on people living with HIV to have to explain why they're HIV positive. Mm. And I'm thinking, you know, if you're not HIV positive, what are you doing to prevent yourself from becoming HIV positive? So, uh, and I think that when PrEP was introduced, it gave no one any more excuse. So you can't yeah. turn around to someone who's HIV positive and ask, uh, because they, there's so many nasty languages like, are you clean? Are you safe? And things like that. I think, well, yeah. I'm not coming near you if you think that I'm unclean. So... But I think that the other thing that I also want to say is that, you know, there are four things that I always focus on when we talk about HIV. And one is stigma. Uh, secondly, shame, denial, and discrimination. Um, you know, when there is stigma, whether it's in the society or in religious spaces, people living with HIV cannot, cannot flourish. They cannot, you know, uh, they cannot survive in those environments. Yeah. When there's HIV shame, whether it's self-shame or people shame you for your HIV status, it really, really does take you down quite speedily. And of course, the other thing is denial. There are still many communities, religious communities in particular, are in denial. Um, I have said many times that, you know, you cannot be a priest or a pastor and believe that nobody in your parish or in your congregation is HIV positive. That is not possible. You are a minister to those that are HIV positive and those who are not, or even those that will become HIV positive in the next day, month or so. So let's not be ignorant. And the last one is discrimination. There is still a lot of discrimination. Um, we live in the United Kingdom where, thankfully, there is no uh, discrimination against people with HIV. But, I mean, try going to the Middle East. I mean, you know, we're talking about you know, Qatar, I know it's not part of this conversation, where the World Cup is taking place. Yeah. You know, I mean, there, there is blatant discrimination against the LGBT community, but there's also discrimination against people living with HIV. If you're mm. HIV positive, 
do not go to the Middle East. They will not tolerate you there. You know, uh, if they found out that you're HIV positive and you're already in their country, they will they will they will deport you and make sure that you never come back uh, to their country. So it's unfortunate. But the, the good news is that, you know, in in Western Europe and in North America in particular, and most parts of Africa, uh, HIV treatment is free and it, it should be accessible. But yeah. the reason why people are not accessing it as quickly enough or uh, effectively is because of the stigma in the society. You know, yeah. you saying the thing about the stigma, just to jump in at the back end of what you just said. You know, I was talking to someone in Zambia. Um, I met a trans woman or I had, I had heard of a trans woman years back, but I left Zambia many years ago. So when I went this year after 11 years, I was like speaking about it lightly in conversation with my cousin's friend. And my cousin's friend's like, oh yeah, that's my friend. And I was like, you know her? I don't know anybody that knows her. Like link me to her so I can meet her. Like, you know, I want, I really want to have a conversation with her. So she links me to her. We finally managed to get a date together. We link up for like 20 minutes um, just because she couldn't get there at the time that I needed to be. We had a conversation. We're talking about all things trans, all the stuff that she does, all the nonprofit stuff that she does. And then at some point we started talking about, you know, like people going to the clinic to get their medication for, you know, to treat the HIV and stuff like that. And she was the second person to tell me that people don't go there because unfortunately there seems to be in the capital city, Lusaka, there seems to be one clinic where people can go and get that medication. But the problem is everybody knows that if you go to that clinic, you have HIV. So people didn't want to go there because if anybody sees them, they would know. And I was like, it's that's, it's, it's, that's it's very unfortunate because in in many of the countries, especially outside of Europe, um, you know, because the the centralization of HIV treatment is by very few organizations. The moment they know where they are in the neighborhood, I mean, believe it or not, I was in Guyana. Uh, in 2019 and you know we, we drove past you know the uh, center for uh, HIV and, and AIDS and treatment and people said to me no one would go in there because uh, pe when people see them go in there the whole town already knows mm -hmm. uh, someone's gonna you know shout out to the town but I think mm -hmm. to be quite honest I mean I, I always look at finding uh, the diverse communities and diverse access to these spaces. I mean, some of the stories from Nigeria is that, you know, if you if you don't want to go to the general hospital for your HIV treatment, you can actually have a private treatment uh, for your HIV, but it costs you. But we're talking about living with the HIV for the rest of your life. You know, if you can't burn all your money, you know, trying to just collect it. I mean, there is a yeah. system in Nigeria called the brown, uh, the brown envelope or the brown parcel where, you know, they will send a, a biker, you know, who will collect the brown package and deliver it to an address where nobody knows what's in the brown bag. And, and it, it becomes very difficult. But I have been actually supporting people um, either arriving in the UK or in the UK, you know, to access their treatment, you know, go to your nearest clinic. Uh, you know, in the UK, we have challenged 
the, the stigma, shame, denial, and discrimination within the system. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, if you make a note of when you go to the clinic, say, for example, I mean, I remember when I used to go to the clinic in the early days, um, when I walk into the clinic, if I see a black nurse or a black pharmacist, I'm going home that day. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I will make another appointment and come back. I'm looking at like, there's no black person in this space because I'm so worried. But, you know, honestly, there was a time that, you know, my luck ran out because um, I'm already in the clinic. I've done all the tests and everything. Then I came out to pharmacy. I literally walk into the hands of someone that I knew and our eyes lock each other's eyes. And it's like, I see you. If anything happens, if I hear my story out there, I'm coming for you. That was what's going on in my mind. <laughs> but to be quite honest, I mean, the, the person was absolutely respectful uh, privacy and confidentiality never said anything you know of course mm. they did a job so i am educating myself and educating others not to exercise those fear they're totally unnecessary and the other thing that we we must always talk about and i'm glad that you met um you know th this person in zambia where they, they were talking uh, about mm. hiv it is so important to have peer support because mm. what can impact your mental health with HIV is the absence of peer support. Yeah. Mm. Now, you know, I mean, I, I always talk about this, that uh, um, I came out as gay when I was probably about 28 years old. 10 years later, I contracted the virus at 38. So can you just imagine, you know, where do I turn to? And when I was infected with HIV, I, I didn't have access to a lot of the services that I have today. For example, there was no peer support for people living with HIV. It took me actually six years after my diagnosis before I found a support group called, uh, it was a support group for newly diagnosed. Can you imagine? Uh, peer support for newly diagnosed. I should have been in that support group within hours, yeah. not six years, yeah. you know? So, yeah. and then I went through that particular support group for like about six weeks um that i you know i saw other people of color i saw other people and actually i'm still friends with many of them today and this was actually in 2009 so you can imagine so for me i'm always advocating that you know uh, at the point of treatment at the point of giving people their result about hiv diagnosis they should also tell them about peer support that is available and needless to say you know uh, with House of Rainbow, we have a, an HIV peer support for MSN. And, you know, I'm very proud to say that I'm supporting over thousands of people, and not just in England, but across Africa. And I'm talking Black men who have sex with men. And I want to reassure them that, you know, God loves you just the way you are. Your HIV status is not a criteria for heaven, you know, yeah. and, and things like that. Yeah. But I think that the other thing that's also very important is that the peer support actually helps a lot of people you know, manage their anxieties and mental health and things like that. Yeah, that's really good. Um, sure. Yeah, that's just so much, so much information. I hope everyone's kind of getting something from this and actually learning about HIV and understanding that the stigma is the thing that's actually making everyone have these opinions. Um, when I was walking Pride, I walked with Stonewall and I actually walked with someone who is a big like a 
AG, uh, HIVT, um, HIVT, HIV, HIV act, activist. Um, <laughs> I'm mixing it with LGBT, I'm mixing it with everything. Um, <laughs> a HIV activist. And um, honestly, they were, they were, they were talking about a lot of the things you've talked about. Um, but they're, they're not black, they're not um, a priest or chaplain. Um, they are just a white gay male. But, um, you know, a lot of the experiences, with the stigma that comes with it is similar across the board. It's a similar, it's similar for everyone um, mm. who has HIV. So yeah, it's it's really interesting to hear. I think I mean, cool. I mean the, the, the other thing that's also very important is HIV mentoring. Mm. Um, like I said, you know, I'm I'm supporting people at House of Rainbow, but you know, after my own experience of not finding uh, the right place to. Uh, go to a peer support group for those newly diagnosed. Uh, mm. When I discovered uh, Positive East in London, you know, I volunteered for them for the HIV mentoring program. And um, since I moved to Manchester, I've now joined the George House Trust, where I'm now part of the HIV mentors um, at, at George House Trust. Now, what I find surprising um, is that in both um, Positive East in London and George House Trust in Manchester, they actually do not have a black person, a black gay man who is providing the HIV mentoring. Mm -hmm. So yeah, for Positive East, I'm the only black gay man providing HIV mentoring, yeah. And and now in Manchester, I'm the only black gay man providing HIV mentoring. But of course, you know, I'm not saying that there's a there's a great deficiency of it because there are other communities like um, I think Prepstar, um, or even um, Big Up within uh, GMFA. These these are actually organisations that probably no longer exist anymore. But I Prepstar with Mac Thompson, for example, are doing a lot of work you know, to support uh, queer men, uh, black queer men living with HIV. So yeah. th there are those services there, but they're very, very small scale. I think it would be great to see a larger scale of these services and support. And, and of course, the support are private. You know, we talk about me uh, being visible with my HIV status. Um, I think I came out with my HIV status in 2018, and I've been living with HIV since 2003. So... Yeah. That's probably about what fifteen years or so. So you can yeah. imagine, yeah. So it took me a long time, even though I came out publicly in twenty eighteen. I have been coming out within the community to support each other because I needed the peer support as well. Yeah, yeah. I think you know support is something that is lacking for a lot of communities. Um, but but for most of all, the HIV community, one hundred percent. Um. But I'm moving on from that. Would you? What would you advise people who are in the LGBT plus community, um, and have HIV, um, and maybe want to attend church? They should. I think people living with HIV have the right to go to church. But I think mm. that you know, like any church that you go to make inquiries about 
where they stand on certain matters. Mm. Um, and, and I think it's important. I mean, I moved to Manchester and I made inquiries about local church. Um, are they inclusive of gay people? Um, I have been there. You know, I've been welcomed very well. So don't go to a church that doesn't welcome you. In fact, there is actually a new hashtag, you know, uh, it, it's called, um, goodness, I just mentioned it, <laughs> right now. Yeah, it's called More Than Welcome. It's called More Than Welcome, hashtag More Than Welcome. And this is actually on the backdrop of churches claiming that all are welcome. Because when you say all are welcome and people come through the door and you say, no, sorry, no, homosexuals are not welcome. You know, uh, you know, we can't allow you in leadership. We can allow you this and that. And yeah. that is obviously not all are welcome. Uh, all are welcome is a fraud to some extent. But, you know, there is now a campaign to actually ensure that you look for a church congregation that is more than welcome. Because if you are beyond the welcoming, then it means that all are truly welcome. And, yeah. you know, you, you can't ask black people to come to church and then we cannot wear our head tie or our ghillie or you yeah. know we cannot we cannot play you know uh, African music or dance in an African way. There are so much restrictions in certain churches, you know. Yeah. Um. Uh, in my local church, you know, I, I said to the priest, I said, "Oh, I will come and teach you some songs in Yoruba so that we can sing it together in church." And you know, I mean, they're actually more open and welcoming to the idea. That yeah. I believe is more than welcome because you are embracing my culture. Uh, Nigeria celebrates its uh, independence day in October. You know, my church was very, very receptive and welcoming. They even, you know, um, you know, allowed me, actually they asked me to preach and celebrate the Eucharist on that yeah. day. And, and you know, and, you know, we, we talked about Nigeria. So we, we have to be looking for congregations that are more than welcome. Wow. Yeah. That is wow. incredible. Wow. So we come to the conclusion now of this. Um, is there anything, um, like anything that you're doing in your life right now that you would like um, our listeners to be directed to? So like your Instagram, the Instagram of any projects and things that you're supporting at the moment that you'd like to tell them about? We'll put it in our description <laughs> and stuff like that. But... Absolutely. Thank you so much. I mean, House of Rainbow can be found on just about every platform so far we are on instagram on twitter on facebook on clubhouse and uh, you know just search for house of rainbow and, and of course if people want to find me personally just look for jide mccauley uh, on all of the various platforms and you will find me but let me just put this also on the record you know house of rainbow is doing a lot we're building a community of um uh, lgbt christians and um, but unapologetically we focus on the black community but we still believe that it's we practice more than work um so we we want to ensure that people are able to connect with us regardless of you know their situation but we have a very clear message um um we 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 have a program every sunday called god adores you moment um it's actually on clubhouse for those who can join the audio platform and it's an incredible space seven a.m. every Sunday morning. We get people from around the world joining us. And, you know, sometimes we get 30, 40 people join uh, in that time of the day. And, of course, we put it on replay so that people can listen to it at, at, at a different time if they choose yeah. to do so. Well, I mean, the whole idea behind it is that we're saying to gay people that, you know, we want to remind them and reassure them 
that G-A-Y means God adores you, God accepts you, God anoints you. So, and, and that to me is very key message that, you know, queer people need to hear. The other program that I'm doing at the moment is also uh, on Saturdays at 8 a.m. I call it Queer Walk with Jesus. And I'm just sharing my very personal journey of my own experience of walking with Jesus. So I go forth and backwards, you know, just recognizing moments in my life where uh, I am Judah, I am queer, and this is my journey with Christ. You know, I mean, a lot of the things I've shared with you today is some of the things I also share on Saturday morning. And again, this one goes on Clubhouse and also on Instagram and as well. So people can always pick that up. But of course, we're building a House of Rainbow community. We have an in-person service in London. The next one is on the 27th of this month, November 2022. Uh, it's taking place at the Oasis Church in Waterloo, uh, very near Lambert North Station. So if you want to come along on Sunday 27, it's at 3.30 p.m. And, um, and I think this is the last one for the autumn period, but we will be um, publishing dates for the new year uh, when the time comes. Wow, it's fantastic. <clears throat> well, I hope that everybody has enjoyed listening to this session. Mm, um, has taken in as much as I've taken in because I definitely learned a lot more and took in more than I thought I would somewhat. But it was it was great. Like it was it was in a really good way, really um aspiring way, should I say. So yeah, for me that was um that was awesome. I don't know about you, Cole, but that uh, yeah, that was I don't know, it's weird. Like I felt like I needed that in a weird way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I get what you mean. Like um it's kind of I don't know, it's just nice to hear someone from a religious background with a, in religion actually talking about the community and being open about it. Mm. Um, I feel like a lot of people need to know that there are people out there in the community who are religious and it can, co it can coexist. It doesn't need to be something that you need to separate from each other, um, which is, yeah, which is nice to hear. Um, yeah, very wholesome. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And and to be quite honest, I think today we haven't even gone into the theology because um a lot of people say ask questions about, you know, what the Bible says, what the Bible says. I I think, you know, I mean, of course, if this makes the the uh, edited version, it's important to let people know that the Bible never said anything against gay people. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, the, the, the uh you know, the Bible never says homosexuality is an abomination. Mm -hmm. And uh, so homosexuality is not a sin. And we need to make that clear. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it is the bad theology, the bad interpretation of scriptures that concluded that homosexuality is a sin. Mm -hmm. And of course, there are more evidence about it. And, and I can share this very quickly. Um, you know, in 1946, uh, the Revised Standard Version Translation Committee uh, made an error by including homosexuality in a list um, you know, of offenses in the Bible. They mm. inserted it in error. It was challenged you know, at the time, but they refused to remove it. But if you look at the date from 1946, it's almost 80 years that the conservative evangelical Christians have used that version of the Bible to bash and abuse the queer community. And I'm sure you know, now there is a little bit of regret 
But I think for, for many queer people who lived between that time and now, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great disservice. And it's unfortunate in itself because, uh, you know, the verse that I'm, I'm, I'm referring to is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, you know, that says, uh, you know, um, uh, made a list of wrongdoings. And I think homosexuality was included alongside drunkard and, and gossipers and things like that. It's not the mm. same, you know. Uh, you know, you, you don't turn around and say, you know, gossipers and homosexuals. Homosexuality is who we are, not what we have become. Yeah. You know, uh, when people gossip, when people lie, when people, you know, uh, abuse alcohol, that's completely different. Yeah, for sure. And I think that sometimes, you know, like I said, you know, when, when we're talking about coming out, it seems that the burden is on queer people to explain why they're gay. I think, again, yeah. you know, the, the burden seems to be on queer Christians to actually research, you know, why they should be part of the church rather than the church make the, the place, the, the church safe for gay people to come into the church. And that's part of the battle that I'm fighting, you know, to make the church inclusive for gay people. Um, yeah. You know, I, I keep doing what I'm doing, but, you know, um, I, I don't hold my breath. The, the church is toxic place. But at the same time, I'm very encouraged by a lot of missions that have become more inclusive. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. That's that's solid. And I really hope that um our listeners take a lot from this, you know. I hope they take a lot from this and can reflect on it. And if they have any further questions, um, you know, I hope that they feel comfortable enough to come to you directly just to speak to you because these are not things we will be able to answer, hence why we brought you on here. Yeah. Um, but it's a gap that we needed to fill for our listeners. Yeah. But, um, in saying thank that, you. we're going to conclude this and just say thank you to everybody for listening and for being here during this episode and um, really hope you enjoy uh yeah give us some feedback because i would like to hear what you lot think because i've taken a lot from this and there's a lot that i'm going to sit with as a person to just kind of think about yeah and digest from there yeah yeah definitely so yeah uh, thank you for coming on the podcast um we've loved having you we've loved listening to everything you've had to say um and yeah like i said i hope listeners have taken something from this and kind of had the closure that some people may have needed Mm -hmm. um so yeah thank you for listening thank you. everyone thank, thank you. you very much for listening everyone and until next time mm -hmm.